And the Oscar goes to, by a nose, Nicole Kidman. Hey, Matt. Hey, Sam. How you doing? Good. Welcome to the Kid Manifesto. How's it going? It's great. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm excited that you're here uh, through the magic of the internet to, to talk to me. Um, I feel a little foolish that uh, this is definitely not my first one of these. And um, right before this, I was straightening up and proceeded to turn on my dishwasher and my washing machine, making it as loud in this apartment as possible. So I'm actually not in the recording closet today. So uh, that's pretty exciting, I guess. <laughs> it just goes to show I've learned nothing in six months of doing this. If it is any consolation, my bedroom doesn't actually have any closets. So um, uh, I'm a little envious of your uh, storage slash recording space. <laughs> yeah, it's super glamorous. There's, as I've mentioned before, there's no light in there. There's also not a power outlet. So I have this like horrendous outdoor extension cord uh, that goes into my bathroom so that like my computer won't die during it. Um, Wait, so, so there are that, some pros to not being in there. Does that mean that when I listen to the Kid Manifesto, you're, I, I can in the future picture you sitting in the dark? Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, I mean, like other than the dark. light from the computer screen, which is like to like 30%, so I don't blind myself. Yeah, it's the dark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great. That's actually even better than what I was picturing. Yeah, right now I'm seated uh, just on the floor in my living room. Um, which is just a step at a real, real high stakes operation here at Kid Manifesto <laughs> Incorporated. Uh, Matt, before we talk about the movie that we're tasked with talking about today, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with Nicole? It's interesting. Um, I think like a lot of people who've uh, been on the, on the podcast before me, uh, my the hours is just a really important movie to me in general um i uh virginia wolf is probably my favorite novelist and has been since i read to the lighthouse in high school senior year um the hours is a movie that i come back to over and over again um i i it's one of three movies that i own on itunes that i can just throw on at any time uh, and really any place in it and dive in without any um, sort of buffer because I just have seen it so many times. Uh, the others are uh, friends with money and Julie and Julia. Uh, so that that's like the three movies that I would take with me on uh, to a deserted Island. Um, and I think that uh, in some ways, Nicole, both because of the way the novel and the, and the film are structured, but also because of what she brings to the performance is kind of the, the keystone of the hours. Um, and other than that though, I haven't, even though I am a professional critic and have sometimes written a lot about movies, uh, I haven't really had a lot of opportunity to write about movies that she's in with the exception of the one that we're going to talk about tonight, which is Lion, uh, which I reviewed for Slant uh, when it came out in the fall of 2016. 
I feel like I did you uh, a real disservice in immediately talking about my dishwasher that I didn't really give you a chance to formally introduce yourself. Um, would you, could you do that for us now? You mentioned one of the places you've written for, but there are many others. <laughs> yeah, um, my name is Matt Brennan and I'm the TV editor for Paste Magazine. Um, but before I was at Paste, um, I was uh, a film and TV critic slash journalist for a bunch of different publications, including IndieWire and Slant Magazine, um, which is where I reviewed Lion. Uh, I did read your Lion review today because you included it in promotion for this recording, which, first of all, thank you so much. That's <laughs> <laughs> a skill uh, for myself, uh, but also for the Kid Manifesto. I actually can't remember how we settled on this movie, and I can't remember if you writing about it had anything to do about it or if it was just what's left. Um, most of these are just a blur as far as organizing. Do you remember by chance? I think you had already farmed out a lot of the more well-known titles in her filmography. Uh, and of the ones that were left, this was the one that I had written about uh, and had seen. And so it sort of made sense of, of, of the ones that were remaining, this would be the one that I would choose. And I have to say, having rewatched it uh, within the last <laughs> two and a half hours, um, I'm glad for the opportunity to revisit it because it was a movie that I had a hard time getting a real handle on the first time around. And it's still thornier than I remembered it. And so it was, it's, I think it will be interesting to talk about it not just her performance, but the the movie as a whole, I think is interesting if imperfect. Yeah, I I don't know why, but I saw like every movie this year, like specifically every Oscar movie, and I did not watch Lion. And I, I don't really have a good explanation for it. It doesn't really make sense, specifically because Nicole's in it. Um, and then I kind of just never got around to it. And then once I kind of had an idea, I was going to do this. I was like, well, now I'm definitely not going to watch it because then I'll just ultimately have to watch it again and take notes. Um, but it, it, it's weird watching it because I would make this argument and maybe you'll agree with me that like it has like six Academy Award nominations and it was nominated like two years ago. And I feel like it's already just completely out of the cultural conversation, like in all aspects. I, I think like Lion is done and maybe you disagree, but... No, I think it was, uh, despite getting that number of nominations, I think that Lion never really was in the cultural conversation, uh, at least not in any kind of broad sense. Um, And I think that's in part because it resists an easy um, narrative about it, and it it resists think pieces and other kinds of things that that help a film or a TV show enter the cultural conversation. And that's actually one of the reasons why I like it is um, it, it doesn't always succeed, but it tries pretty valiantly to avoid some of the most um, egregious tropes of both films about uh, India, like Slumdog Millionaire and films about, uh, adopted children and adoptive parents. Um, And for those reasons, I think it's interesting, but it also makes it kind of hard to really wrap your hands around. And it also is something where 
uh, I can understand why you didn't see it when it came out because there isn't, it doesn't have quite the hook um, that, that some of Nicole's other movies in particular have. Um, it's very, I mean, I don't know if you felt this watching it for the first time. It's very, um, it's a movie that I would describe as sturdy. It, it doesn't, it's not really flashy in any way. It's sort of plotting and it's pacing. It, it feels familiar in a lot of its subject matter. And yet somehow it works as a kind of, you know, uh, tearjerker with backbone. Yeah, I think um, this was one of the few movies that I didn't, uh, I wasn't like actively taking notes during. And part of that was because I just had this hunch that I could guess the major beats of the plot. And and I think the movie expects that of probably most of its audience. Um, it's not like a super complex thing that's happening, but it, and, and maybe that plays into the sturdiness. Um, it just, yeah, the whole thing feels I don't want to say weird. Weird doesn't mean anything. Um, I guess I guess sturdy is right. Uh, it 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 didn't feel paint by numbers, but mainly I just ended and I was like, "Yep, that was the movie that I, that I thought I would be seeing, and now I've seen it." Yeah, there isn't. It doesn't do anything really unexpected. Uh, well, that's not exactly true. Um, my number one question about this movie is why Rooney Mara is in it. And, uh, like, what the appeal was for her to play this, like, pretty throwaway girlfriend character. Um, And that, to me, was surprising, that they so misused her. Um, Or that she... Yeah, it... That she sort of was, like, read this script and was like, yes, I should definitely play that role. I mean, literally, Wallpaper Paste could have played the role that of um, Saru's girlfriend. It's so interesting because like, even in, even in something like her, where she's essentially playing, I guess it's an ex-girlfriend in that instance, but there's like, there's so much more to do there. And it's like more exciting because she's kind of uh, like, there's a little bit of eventfulness in there um, or a little bit of dissatisfaction. And this is just so like milk toast, paint by numbers. And like, it's the director's first movie. Um, she obviously likes him because he's also the director of Mary Magdalene, which we know her to be in. Um, but like, maybe it was Nicole, maybe it was the source material. I, I just, I, I don't know what she's doing there. Yeah. And it just seems kind of, um, thankless because there's really not a lot of there there for that character. And it's interesting to me because, you know, yeah, because in the social network, you know, she is, I guess, playing, which is how, you know, I came to know her as an actress, is she's playing a girlfriend, but she's playing the exact opposite of what you expect from the kind of traditional supportive girlfriend character. And then to then go back and do this with Lion strikes me as just a strange choice. But hey, you know, she's done a lot of other interesting things. And whether it was because she liked the director or, or what, um, I do think that that is part of what makes the movie hard to really love, but it's also, you know, I don't dislike it, but it's, it doesn't do anything to really put you over the hump toward thinking, wow, this is really reinventing 
the wheel uh, in any way. Um, it, it strives pretty hard to be inoffensive. And sometimes that ends up uh, just feeling kind of dry. It's definitely, and I think you might've actually mentioned this in your review, like color palette wise, I think it definitely tries to distance itself um, from like what might be sort of an obvious comparison to like a Slumdog Millionaire type thing, which is so like vivid. This is very much not, not that movie. Uh, and I wonder how much of that is, is conscious or is just the director's interpretation. But that was at least one thing I noticed about the direction. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, it does a, a reasonably good job and definitely a concerted job of avoiding what I, what I sort of think of as the like teeming crowds tropes of um, films about uh, whether it's the Indian subcontinent, whether it's sub-Saharan Africa, um, whether it's the Middle East films by um, in this case, Australian, but, European or North American filmmakers about those places in the world often tend to treat the people as an undifferentiated mass and really like underscore the exoticism of, of the settings by making everything like set in some kind of flea market or bazaar that has all of these like brightly colored tapestries and people running through them. In a way, I appreciate the fact that Lion uh, doesn't attempt to romanticize uh, the India that Saru, played by Deb Patel, grows up in. Um, in fact, it's like the that first part, if the kid were not adorable, would be a kind of unbearably bleak. You know, like uh, for people who haven't seen it, um, uh, this young boy named Saru, who I think he must be like, what only three or four or five years old when it happens, he ends up falling asleep on a decommissioned train that takes him 1500 kilometers away from home. And because he's so young, he doesn't actually know where he's from or what his mom's name is, or he doesn't have any way of finding his way back. So he ends up, I mean, he's first uh, like on the street alone then he gets he's found by a woman who tries to sell him into basically like sex trafficking uh, with like a pedophilic older man. Then he runs away only to get picked up and brought to this like Dickensian orphanage where they also are trying to like sell the kids for sex. And then finally he's adopted by uh, an Australian couple. Um, and and that's when sort of the action switches. And that whole Indian sequence is very much the opposite of the Slumdog Millionaire aesthetic. And I think that there's something admirable in that. Um, and I also think that, and I write about this a lot in the review, what Garth Davis, the director, seems to me to be trying to do with the direction is create bridges between India and Australia instead of setting up like a comparison and contrast clash of civilizations type narrative. He's really saying 
maybe the, the these places are not as always as different as they're made out to be. Yeah, there's a there's that scene um, at one point when we get to the Dev Patel section. He's enrolled in like a hospitality and tourism course, uh, which maybe that's why Rooney did this. Maybe she just really has a passion for the hospitality and tourism industry. Uh, <laughs> but she's she's also there. And there's this actually, I actually kind of like this scene. Um, they're in kind of like a small group discussion and. Uh, there are some uh, Indian nationals or some Australian nationals, and they kind of all get into a discussion about, um, you know, which cricket team Dev Patel roots for. And, it, you know, at this point he thinks he's from Calcutta. Uh, and I do actually like the way that that discussion plays out because I think it serves the narrative that you're talking about, which is showing how similar these two places are because up until that point, the movie, uh, at least from the character's perspective, I think the characters think that they're a lot more segmented Um and maybe where the viewer are, are supposed to believe. Yeah, and it's interesting. When I watched it again, I was struck by, in my memory, there are two very distinct, and there are, there are two very distinct halves to the movie. There's Saru as a very young child from, the, from sort of the day that he gets separated from his family through to when his brother, his adoptive brother, Mantosh, arrives uh, in Australia. And then there's a, a, and then there's like a cut to black. And then next thing you know, you flash forward 20 years and Saru is an adult, is a, is an adult man. Um, but what I was struck by watching again is how much of the second half features uh, sort of images from his childhood, whether, memories or just sort of landscapes um, that are spliced into the narrative of Saru as an adult and a lot. And there's this way in which um, the editing and the motif of literal bridges is creating these connections between Australia and India. Saru as an adult, Saru as a child, Saru as an Australian, Saru as an Indian that to me elaborate ideas about being a, a sort of transnational or multinational person that a lot of other stories prefer to ignore in order to set up this kind of like, oh my God, you know, fish out of water, um, culture shock kind of story, which I feel like has been done before and is kind of boring. So Lion, by doing that, is doing something interesting. I can't put my finger and I couldn't, when I reviewed it the first time around exactly what it is that prevents it from being a great movie. Other than that, the, the pacing is all wrong. And I, I guess it's maybe just that they're trying to fit too much into like a two hour movie. Yeah. Uh, maybe I think this is maybe tied up in, in that, but it's hard for me not to think because this is a 2016 movie. It's hard for me not to think about Moonlight when I think about this movie and Moonlight obviously does something very similar with the way that it breaks up. It's, I guess it's a three act structure as compared to lions um, kind of like two halves. Uh, and I think there are a lot of similarities in the way that they, they treat those. Um, I guess most being like the presence of the Nicole character in both halves and, and maybe the presence of, um, 
like Mahershala Ali's character in the first two, two acts of Moonlight. Um, and like maybe the difference lies somewhere in there. But yeah, I agree. The pacing is one of my biggest problems with the movie. Uh, I also think it suffers from not having a true lead, honestly. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Um, because, be, yeah, because you have the sort of Saru as a child who's played by an actor named Sunny Pawar, uh, who is adorable and like really charming, and then you have Dev Patel who, uh, I think is really good in it, but gets kind of the in some ways in the short end of the stick, uh, narratively speaking, um. And then you have, uh, we've talked about Rooney being kind of a throwaway character. And I guess I was, oh, in some ways, the emotional center of the movie is Nicole's character. And yet I feel like she, she doesn't actually have a lot of screen time. And so it's hard for me to kind of determine, is that a flaw in the writing? Or is she actually so good? And I think she is really strong in this role. Is she so good that she is making a bigger impact than the character really has on the page. I think it's the second one. Uh, I think I'm like a pretty easy sell at this point for Nicole <laughs> things. Um, <laughs> I'll like take what I can get. Cause I've had to watch some movies that she's in that are perhaps not so great. And uh, I, I mean, she has that great monologue uh, where Dev Patel is like pretty convinced um, that like surely the reason one of the reasons he was adopted was because Nicole and um, her husband David Wenham, who is also in Australia with her, as a fun fact, um, like must be infertile, and and that's why they adopted. She has this great speech where she talks about like you know she she chose them or they chose them, um, and I've also like had a rough couple of weeks, so like anything even like remotely emotional has been like really setting me for a t- tailspin, and I was like pretty dry the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I know that I messaged you before we started that you had to be prepared for the, f- for me to be the first person ever to cry on the, uh, kid manifesto. I don't think I'm going to do that, but I did get close to tears, uh, when as a young, um, as a young child, when his, when Saru's brother Mantosh shows up he is like deeply traumatized by his experience, which we don't ever get any real details about um, other than the kind of general sense that orphans uh, are just really at risk of all kinds of different traumas and uh, violence perpetrated against them. So he shows up and immediately freaks out and, uh, Nicole's character has a kind of breakdown and she's crying in the kitchen and Saru comes in and he sort of gently approaches her and finally like wraps his arms around her neck. And that was a moment where it's just like, Ooh, okay. This movie is really going to go for the emotional jugular. And she does a great job of conveying that level of emotion throughout even though I think the character is kind of underwritten. Um, there's this one moment where they meet Mantosh in the airport and he, see, he, he seems reticent to approach them, which is normal given the circumstances, 
but there's some edge to it. And in her face, you can see that she picks up on that. Sue picks up on that edge and it's just like a flash in her eyes, but you just know that she knows that this isn't going to be as easy as it was with Saru. And the fact that she can do that without that, that Nicole can do that without, um, without saying a word or even, you know, even really breathing a word. It's just a glimpse, a glimmer uh, is really impressive to me. And I think she does that kind of throughout the movie. I agree. Uh, I do think the character is suffers from being underwritten, um, but I will definitely back up what you said. There, there's the scene, as you mentioned, um, where they, they go to pick up what's, what's the brother's name or not the brother, but the adoptive brother. Uh, Mantosh. Mantosh. Yeah. They go to pick him up and she doesn't, she doesn't do much to like stop him from hitting the walls and screaming. It's really the the husband and the adoption agent. And then again, like when he throws the temper tantrum, like in their apartment, uh, she kind of just stands by and, and really it's the David Wenham character that's, you know, holding the the child and like trying to settle him. And it's not until the very end where he's kind of finally settled down and she's sitting down with him uh, that she like really has agency, but she's, I mean, she's acting throughout the entire thing. I just, uh, and she's very good. I just think it's a little underwritten. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it really is this strange film where like, I, I guess in some ways I want it to be two films. I want more of each half of Saru's life in order for it to feel like it's whole. Um, Cause you really basically get, I mean, it's not exactly an hour each, but let's say you get an hour of each and it feels like that's the length of a TV episode. That's not really, I don't, I just feel like that's not enough. Um, and because of that, Kidman has to do a ton of work in the second half to create this whole sort of backstory. Basically her job is she needs to emotionally fill in what those 20 years that we don't see were like for this family that has constantly struggled with having two adoptive children who are not, um, who are not from the country that they're living in and that their parents are, that their adoptive parents are from and who have two vastly different experiences with that. Um, and she has to do that all in like a handful of scenes um, in the second half of the movie. And the fact that she actually manages to kind of do that without any, any specifics about what happened uh, being stated is pretty impressive. Um, and I think, I think a lot of the reason why the movie works can actually be credited to her because if you had to explicitly go through and outline all of that with dialogue, the movie would be like unwatchable. It is interesting that uh, in a movie where like a lot of the plot and a lot of the like action um, are related to kind of like internet searching and kind of like a very localized, like hard, hard to show cinematically process, uh, that you don't see more of that, I guess. 
Because that's I, that's like maybe how I would flesh that out. But I guess you're right. It would be kind of a slog if we just alternated between like scenes of Dev Patel using Google Earth and then like another like bit of emotional exposition from Nicole. <laughs> oh my God. To call it action is, I think, uh, being a little generous. I mean, it is really... There's a there's like basically like a whole sort of sequence where it's just, you know, Rooney Mara wakes up in the middle of the night and sees Deb Patel like on his computer with the light shining in his face in the dark. And she kind of sighs and goes back to bed. And then you cut to the morning and he's asleep on the couch with his computer closed. And you just go through that cycle like three or four times. And it's like, why? What, like, what is the – this? There's no, um, maybe that's what I mean when I call it sturdy. So it has like a real spine to it. Um, and the, the narrative, which is based on a true story is strong enough that you can kind of ignore some of these more, more clumsy moments, but it isn't a movie. It is most definitely a movie that sort of, I think reflects it's director's lack of experience because it is not gracefully done. It's like definitely like a brick building. It's not like an airy, modern, you know, impressive structure. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I have, I guess like two things to say about this. One is kind of a tangent, which is like, I feel about this movie and the fact that it's a true story and ultimately like you have to use what happened. So like, Google Earth is unfortunately going to be a large part of the structure of the story. I feel about this the same way I felt when I watched Compliance for the first time, which is like, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it is wild and some truly unwell stuff happens in it. And uh, every time I was like, this is made up. And then like, I just went and like looked up the real story afterwards and I was like, nope, all, all, all of this happened. So I guess they had to use it like for better or for worse. Uh and then the other thing is just the whole time I was watching this movie, I couldn't stop thinking about um, how RuPaul is constantly talking about what she would say is like hitting the Google Earth button on your life, meaning like zoom out and like look at things from like a big picture perspective. I just kept thinking like RuPaul must love Lion, like must fucking love <laughs> Lion. <laughs> oh my God. I, uh, I don't know. I mean, can anyone really fucking love Lion? Like, I don't think it's that kind of movie. I don't think it's the kind of movie where anyone could watch it. I mean, discounting the people involved and have like, um, like an infatuation with it. It just is. It's not that kind of movie. It's, um, it's way too staid. I guess the word It's a little Mm -hmm. old fashioned. It's like a little plotting. It's fine. And it definitely hits a couple high emotional notes, but it, I don't think it, I don't think it could breed devotion because it's just a little too lead footed. Yeah, it was fine. Um, <laughs> and I, so say that, I say that, I say that as someone who, uh, you know, I should say for the record, Deb Patel could get it. Like I really like Deb Patel. I, sure. I obviously really like Nicole Kidman. I really like Rooney Mara in everything else. Um, yeah, I'm going to come out as like, this is very problematic, but 
I hesitate to say that I'm a fan of the newsroom because that's, I don't think that's a thing for anyone. Um, but I will say I, that I was occasionally charmed by Def Patel in the newsroom. Yeah, no, I guess his, his character is, or the way that he plays the character is sort of charming. I, um, I fucking hate the newsroom more than probably any other TV show I've written about, uh, that I can remember off the top of my head. I mean, I, I watched every episode of that show just with like my teeth clenched, um, because I hated it so much, but I watched every episode. (laughs) So there must've been something that I was, and that I think is maybe the, the other thing about lion is at least with the newsroom, like you could be really invested in it because you hated it. Or there were people who really loved it. Um, I don't think Lion goes enough out on a limb in either direction to, to merit much more than saying, yeah, it was fine. Um, which is one of the reasons I think it did well at the Oscars. is <laughs> because it is exactly the kind of like middle brow, nutritious, emotional story that you know, a middle brow Oscar voter in his or her like fifties or sixties can sort of say like, yeah, like I like that kind of classic tearjerker melodrama. Um, Yeah, I do. I do want to talk a little bit about it's Oscar nomination success. And I do also kind of want to revisit the point of, both Dev and Nicole being nominated for supporting performances. Uh, because as I said earlier, like I do think this movie suffers from not having a true lead. Um, do you think that either of those performances are deserving of a, a nomination or B an award? I'm, uh, I'm blanking on who else was nominated. I'm blanking on who won that, uh, Oh, I can tell you that Viola, Viola Davis won for Fences. I can oh, also well, tell you, because I just talked about this, was like Octavia Spencer, Naomi Harris, um, Michelle Williams, and someone else. Uh, Viola, Naomi, Nicole. Oh, yeah. Viola, Naomi, Nicole, Octavia, and Michelle. I mean, okay. So I don't consider... Uh, Viola's performance to be a supporting performance either. So I think that that year is maybe just like, um, I think as deserving as she was, um, I don't see that as, as, I don't see her performance in Fences as a supporting performance. Um, So if we kind of discount that, yeah, I mean, I think I'm trying to think what else came out that year. But I think that Nicole's performance is worthy um, for the reasons that I said earlier. And also because, as you mentioned, you brought up that monologue. In in this way, too, Lion is kind of traditional where, you know, a supporting actress gets a nomination really on the basis of a single scene. Like she does a lot in the other scenes, as we've talked about, even the ones where she doesn't have a lot of dialogue. Um, or where she's not even really the focus of the camera because she is just so adept at um, at conveying emotional information without being mm-hmm. um, without being overly forceful about it. But she has an Oscar scene in this movie 
where the camera is like right up in her face and she's giving this tearful explanation of what it means to adopt children, what it means to be a mother, uh, about having a, a hallucination when she was 12 of a, okay, this, I have to say, I forgot this happened. And when I rewatched it, it just like ugh, gave me a little bit of pause. So she said, she's telling the story and it starts off exactly kind of, it's sort of beautiful where she says like, no, your father and I chose to adopt. Uh, it wasn't an issue of like, we couldn't have our own kids. And then she goes off on this weird tangent where she's like, uh, my dad was an alcoholic. And when I was 12, I had this hallucination of a brown skinned child and I suddenly felt good. And like, that was going to save me. And I was like, wait, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. And I forgot. I didn't take many notes, but I did write that down to make sure we talked about it. I forgot that because when I so when I reviewed it, I um, was at a screening of it at the New Orleans Film Festival, and so in a situation like that, as a as a critic, you know, you, I, I'm taking notes in a notepad, but I'm taking them in the pitch dark without really looking down at the page, and then you you know, and what my usual strategy is to to go home and write it up as quickly as possible. But it's it's sort of in, in that situation where I can't go back. Like now that I write mainly about TV and I get, you know, screeners, if there's something that I am like, well, that was a little weird, I can go back and just rewatch that scene and take like detailed notes on my computer or whatever. In this case, I think I sort of passed over it because it didn't really fit into the review that I was writing. And... I got to say that like made me kind of grimace <laughs> this time around. <laughs> it made me feel yeah, weird. It's, it's a lot. I didn't like the idea that like in the end, this whole mother son bond, which you're supposed to believe is this like profoundly strong connection, even though she's not his birth mother is like because she felt like she was destined somehow to adopt a non-white baby. Uh, Oh, I don't know. It does kind of, yeah, it does kind of color the whole scene that starts like very nobly with the idea of um, like being fertile and still wanting to adopt to like something not more, certainly not more sinister, but something like less pure <laughs> perhaps and maybe that's i mean i haven't read the the memoir so maybe that's sort of verbatim what this conversation looked like in real life um but then in that case i feel like as a director or as the screenwriter um you have to build in something else elsewhere in the film uh to kind of grapple with some of the potential I hate using this word, but it's the one that I can think of right now, the sort of potentially problematic, like racial, ethnic, national, colonial implications uh, that are that are sort of barely touched on by the way that she delivers that monologue and then they sort of brush it away. I don't know. I, watching it again, I was it it really struck me as a false uh, note in a way that it, that it I had forgotten about. 
Yeah, I'll never watch this movie again. I gotta be honest. <laughs> I mean, this, this will be the last time. If you had told me before this movie came out that I was going to spend this much time thinking about Lion, I probably would have throttled you. <laughs> you think I was Lion? Um, I do have one, one. Well, maybe not one last question, but I do have another question for you, um, which is for this movie in like the billing and in the title cards. There is a like a very distinct and Nicole Kidman at the end. And um, I don't think this is the first time that's happened, but I do kind of think that Lion in a lot of ways ushers in this and Nicole like final billing. Um, obviously, she's in a different caliber than the rest of the cast, I would argue. Um, I guess the question in there is like, do you think this starts this or do you have like a different point where you think we've entered the like and Nicole Kidman era? Cause I'm sure that Beguiled also probably does it. And I'm sure some movies before it. Does that even make sense as a question? Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. What I, what I, my sort of way of describing it is like, she's in her Meryl Streep years where I, I can picture Nicole's film career um, from this point forward certainly from lion forward and and maybe uh earlier including a lot of really juicy roles in otherwise unremarkable movies um on the other yeah, hand that's that's essentially what i mean yeah on the other hand i will say this uh one thing that has that is continuing to change and that has certainly changed since Meryl sort of made that crossover from like leading lady to, you know, like supporting grand dom, um, is the role of television. So, um, obviously the, 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 the best example is big little lies in Kidman's case and soon to be Meryl's case, but even like her appearing in, um, the second season of top of the lake, there is a way in which, the sort of traditional progression uh, is is confused by television allowing for different kinds of projects starring different kinds of people to be made. Um, so, for example, yeah, you have Lion where she's playing this sort of older. I mean, her her son is to, like what he's what is he twenty six years old in the movie, so she's sort of playing. Uh, older than she actually is in Lion and you get the sense that she she really is hitting heavier than anyone else in the cast or the movie itself really but then you see something like Big Little Lies which comes out um, you know uh, really only what several months later and she's playing a mother of young children with like uh, a very handsome husband. She's a successful attorney. She's the center of the story in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like TV allows, and it's not just Nicole. I think TV allows actresses in their say mid thirties into their fifties. Oh, an extension of the sort of leading lady period of their career that film still hasn't caught up with. And so I'm excited to, to see her maybe be able to do a little bit of both. That's a good point. Yeah. I was just kind of thinking 
of like scenarios like where scenarios maybe it's where like, maybe it's like, um, like a Judy Dench or something where like, maybe she's not the most like traditionally famous person in a movie, but she's going to nab that last billing, uh, regardless, just because of like her place in the industry and, and seeing this title card in this movie made me think about that. But television is a really interesting point because it's definitely like more than anything else she did last year or or in the lion year, like definitely jump started her career again. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see where they go with Big Little Lies. I am one of those people who uh, I I'm I'm not like terribly upset that they're going to do a second season. I, I'm open minded about it, um, but I'm also excited to see how she sort of parlays it into potentially other TV work or I mean, she's obviously going to be in the goldfinch, which I think is going to be a big, probably like Oscar season kind of movie. Um, so yeah, I think TV more than anything else is going to be responsible for the sort of next stage in her career, um, which is great. And it's, it's great for me because like, I never get to write about people like Reese and Nicole and Meryl. And now as a TV critic, all of the great actresses are coming over to like my side of the fence. And uh, it definitely keeps things interesting. Yeah. You had said that you don't often get to write about Nicole. Um, is, is Lion the only time that you've had to do that? Uh, well, I wrote about Big Little Lies. Um, and I'm trying oh, to think if there's, I have done a piece more in a personal vein on the hours, but I didn't really discuss uh, Nicole's performance in a lot of detail. And I think that's probably about it. Um, and that, but that's true of a lot of, you know, her caliber of, uh, you know, film actress, uh, until recently. Um, because TV, I think for, such a long time was considered to be slumming it and that that has really changed and i think that uh big little lies went a long way toward um toward proving that yeah i think it's a huge leap um i can't think of another show that bridges that gap like so quickly i mean in one big, season. big little lies did for women what true detective did for men in terms of i think convincing uh a number of film actors and actresses who had previously been maybe resistant to coming over to tv that it could be um that it could be worthwhile to them and they could play a role that they would never get to do on film. I mean, and the only, the only other sort of precursor to that would be something like Mike Nichols, angels in America, but that was like a whole different sort of gener. I mean, that was a generation ago, essentially. Um, yeah, I, I just, uh, listened to the, what about Merrill podcasts? Shout out to them episode about angels in America. And just like, they spent a lot of time talking about just like what the TV landscape looks like in 2003. And it feels like a hundred years ago. I mean, it basically was a hundred years ago in TV years. Um, in 2003, I think in 2003, HBO was the only place where angels could happen. Um, and really through then, you know, based on some of the stuff I've read from, um, 
uh, Isaac Butler and uh, Dan Coy's oral history of it. Um, it was even then it was like a reach and it, it happened only through a confluence of a lot of different factors. I think if you brought not just angels, but any kind of like juicy, um, you know, seven or eight part story with some well-known actors and maybe a well-known director or writer attached to it, there's like 10 or 12 places that you could bring that to and reasonably think you might get green lighted Hulu, Netflix, Amazon prime, FX, AMC, HBO, Showtime. Like there's a lot of options now for this kind of project that didn't exist in the TV world 15 years ago. And that's why TV is so exciting right now. Uh, that will probably change uh, at some point. So I'm happy to have people like Nicole take as much advantage of it uh, as they can now, you know, strike while the iron is hot. Yeah. Maybe we'll get Nicole in. Um, what's the next, what's the next like big book that's going to get up. Maybe we'll get Nicole as like a character in uh, the inevitable, a little life. <laughs> HBO miniseries. <laughs> oh my god! I don't even know. The funny thing is, like when I think of, I read that book, and I love. I I'm one of the people who loved it. Uh, I devoured it so quickly. I cried on many planes and in many airports reading it. Um, I, I can't really even remember any female characters. <laughs> there aren't. I mean, there there are so few. There's um like the. This is such a tangent. Like the professor's wife is the only person that I can think of. There's with like be, any substance. What is going to be the? Oh man, I'm trying to think if there's anything that I've read recently that um, that had more women characters in it. Uh, but I'm I'm blanking on what I've read recently. In any case, uh, yeah, I think I think you can expect to see. Nicole Kidman do more TV after her. Uh, I mean, she won like basically every freaking award that there was to be given this year for Big Little in the past year for Big Little Lies. And you compare that to she had performances in well-received movies like The Beguiled and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And that sort of stuff just like isn't big enough to break through in the Oscar race anymore. So if you want to take home trophies and do interesting work and make a shit ton of money while doing it, TV is where it's at. I agree. Uh, in the interest of taking home trophies, this is a segue for you. Do you feel ready <laughs> to rate this movie? I do. Cool. Um, well, let's switch gears. Let's do it. Uh, so you're vying for the, the coveted golden compass trophy here. Um, I'm going to give you some one through five categories, five being the highest um, and you're going to get a chance to rate the movie. Uh, these can be on the movie as a whole or just Nicole. Honestly, feel free to explain yourself however however you feel. Um, this first one I think is the most important for this movie, and that's the wigs. So on a one through five scale, how do you feel about them? Six. I mean, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's an infinity symbol. <laughs> so there's really only two uh, that, I, that I am that are vivid in my mind and they are both immaculate. One is like a curly kind of Marge Simpson inspired, like sort of like redhead 80 shoulder pads look. And the other is like an 
early to mid 2000s like mop top and they are both uh just amazing um so yeah i don't know if you would allow me to cheat and give it a six out of five but i would give it a six out of five i'm still gonna cap you off in the interest of uh, being the arbiter at five (laughs) but just know that like (laughs) this is a a huge tangent but in season one of crazy ex-girlfriend there's that um put yourself first in a sexy way song and at one point they're like (laughs) um like they say something about uh it's an infinity sign. Like, get a tattoo of the infinity sign. That's how I feel about the wigs in this movie. Like, put it on my body. <laughs> commit it to memory. <laughs> well, I'm so with you. I'm with nice. you on that one. They are really great. I love, I love a regular woman wig on Nicole, and I've said this a million times. And these ones are so specific and so dated. It's, it's a thousand chef kisses into the air. Um, how about? How about the accents in this movie? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Um, well, I mean, it's I think it's tough because I think most people are just using their natural accent. Yeah, I mean, I don't. So, so on one level, I guess I would say the accents are a five because I think pretty much everyone maybe. Dev Patel slightly accepted is using their own natural speaking voice. Like Rooney Mara is playing an American, even though she lives in Australia. Uh, she just the, loves hospitality. She's got to travel the globe <laughs> to get that education. On the other hand, like there's not really anything special then about the accent. So let's uh, go with three. Let's split the difference. Cool. Uh, okay, so this one is the Naomi Watts scale, and a high score on this would suggest a uh, a high level of connection of Naomi Watts to this movie, and um, you can choose to explain that however you want. Hmm. Okay, I am going to give this a four because I imagine Naomi Watts coaching Nicole when she was working on them on the Oscar monologue that we were talking about. Like I can imagine, I can, I can imagine them workshopping it together. I'll take that. Yeah. I don't think, I definitely don't think that like she was in contention for this role and I don't necessarily think they maybe text about it outside of like, Oscar week. Um, but I like the idea of them just spitballing as two women that have figured out what kind of actresses they are at this point. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that Naomi is her, the whole kind of arc of her career skews a little bit younger and a little bit more offbeat than like, than would be right for a role like this one in lion. So I definitely don't think it was like they both went into audition and they were fighting over it. I feel like this is something where like Nicole would be like working on it and like trying to sort of figure out exactly how to do it. And maybe just like needed another set of eyes and she trusts Naomi to like give her an unvarnished opinion about it. I love sisterhood. I agree. How about, okay. How about approachability? So if you're at, um, we'll say a friend's birthday party and you see Nicole's character, Sue, 
just kind of like hanging out, how inclined are you to go up and strike a conversation with her? Five. Five. Great. Bitch, I, lo- bitch, I love your hair. <laughs> There's no <laughs> like way, <that's- laughs> There's no way yeah, you, that you don't see that hair in 2018 um, and not say something. No, I mean, okay, in 2018 or in 19, I think it's 1987, I, I just... She is very, I mean, okay, so that was like my sort of joking version of the answer. The The real answer, though, is like, this is a woman who um, is like a really devoted mother. She's kind. She is socially conscious. Like, her, her desire to adopt is rooted in a desire to give orphan children a better life. Um but she's in, she's not in any way like they are pretty middle class. She's not flashy or stuck up. I, I don't know. I just feel like she's the kind of person who she would like invite you over for like chips and dip and like bridge or like to watch the Oscars with or something. Like I just I would totally uh, if she, if when if and when I date Dev Patel. Uh, Sue would be like a great mother-in-law. I feel like we would get along really well. Oh, speaking of, how do you feel about the scene at the very end of that movie where it shows like the real family uniting? I don't uh, love that trope. The one that I remember it pretty vividly from was Deepwater Horizon. (laughs) Um, Uh Uh-huh, go on. (laughs) I don't know. I just, it it happened to really break the spell for me with Deepwater Horizon. I, I I think it's it's one of those things where if you're going to, to make like a pretty close docudrama-esque movie about real life events, then just do that. Like don't feel like you need to then break the spell at the end by showing us the real people. Like I know that the real guy didn't look like Mark Wahlberg or that the real Sue Brierly didn't look like Nicole Kidman. I actually, maybe she, she did. I don't even remember at this point, but I just think that it's like a weird choice to make and I'm against it. Great. I agree. <laughs> it reminded me, this isn't really the same thing, but it reminded me of the end of the disaster artist where they show those like side by sides. And it was like, we get it. Like we're, we're, we understand that this is a faithful recreation. Like I don't even see it. It's funny that you say that because I literally just watched my award screener of The Disaster Artist last night, like two months too late to vote for any awards for it. Uh, And I was like, wow, you guys really just made this movie so you could do these, like you could recreate these scenes. And it was like a fun kind of like side project for you. God, I thought that movie was like just, it was fine, but like it was really not anything to write home about oh it's super masturbatory i also hate the conceit and this is not for this podcast i hate the conceit at the beginning of like the real comedians talking about it hated it uh, yeah i mean i didn't like anything about it really other than a couple funny moments in the shoot like any kind of like behind the scenes like shooting going terribly awry hollywood story has a little bit of appeal for me uh but yeah i yeah i'm so Yes, I'm uh, against. Just watch Noises Off. Fuck it. Don't watch that movie. Boy, have I got a film for you. Anyway, uh, how do you... 
How suppressive do you think that this movie is to the teachings of Scientology? Um, let me think. I mean, I, what do I know about the teachings of Scientology? Not very much, uh, to be honest. I once went on a date with a Scientologist. Um, I, I didn't know he was a Scientologist until he sprang it on me after the fact and tried to like hand me some like reading information about it. Um, oh, I guess I can, after, after we had slept together. So I guess it was still still technically on the date. Uh, he like pitched me Scientology as pillow talk. Um, in any case, I'm trying to remember like what he was telling me about or what he was like. So that that's my only real experience with Scientology. I'm going to say probably only a two. Wait, okay. so it's suppressive. A f- that a means five, it's- yeah. Five on here would be like, this completely is an insult to the principles of Scientology. Yeah. I mean, let's, okay, let's go with a three then. I don't, I I think that it's a little too grounded in um, reality to to be completely on board with Scientology, but I also think that it's not going out on any limbs that Scientology would find like beyond the pale, which I think is goes back to like the same thing that we've really been talking about this whole hour. Is this is a movie that is unwilling to go far enough in any direction that it would cause any strong feelings in anyone, including the nutty Scientologist guy who tried to like hand me a pamphlet after we boned that time. <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay, final question: How iconic do you think this movie is to Nicole's overall career? One through five. <sighs> It's a one that might get bumped up to a two or a three when we look back later and the focus is more on her performance than on the movie. Yeah, I think like, I, think, this is I the, think it's a one that's maybe a two because she got an Oscar nomination personally. Yeah, I mean, I think it could look like an interesting kind of bridge between... So she has like, I mean, I'm trying to think about the, she just goes through these really interesting phases in her career, which I'm sure you can talk about with much more, um, uh, aplomb than I can, uh, just because you've been talking about it with so many other people, but like she has that kind of mid nineties to die for moment and then she has like her late 90s early 2000s really big moment from like uh eyes wide shut through birth which is like one of my favorite movies of all time and then she has this sort of lull i think in the arc of her career lion will be seen as a movie that sort of bridged the space between this sort of weird like she had like that rabbit hole paperboy moment and then there was like a kind of a couple of year lull and lion is the first in a series of performances that got a lot more attention. I think it's rude that you don't think that trespass starring Nicole Kidman and Nicholas cage, uh, is the start of this most recent peak, but fine. I'll allow it. 
<laughs> There's no fucking way. <laughs> it's it's um, ten days in theaters. Doesn't match this Academy Award nominated performance. It wait, that was only in theaters for ten days. How do you find all this out? How much research have you done for this, Sam? Uh, like in hours, how how would you how would you estimate? Here's well, so like here's a here's a good way to contextualize it, which is like. I do have to watch quite a bit of these movies uh, for the podcast um, and spoiler alert. Sometimes they get recorded well before they air. Uh, But like this month uh, there's a thing on letterboxd where it's like essentially for 30 days in the month, you watch um, 30 different films from 30 different countries. And like, because this takes up so much time, I'm definitely using this as my Australia. (laughs) Like that's going to be one of them (laughs) because I don't have time to watch another movie tonight and make it count. So that's a sort of answer to your question. Um, but yeah, Trespass beat from Justin to Kelly as the quickest movie to go from theaters to like video on demand and DVD. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. Um, I'm so sorry. Where does that leave us with the iconicness scale? I cut you off. I think we settled on, I'll stick with a one. Okay. Um, and if you ever do like a, if you ever reboot the Kid Manifesto uh, in like ten years, then we can then we can come back to it. Oh my god, it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be me as Laura Palmer saying like I'll see you in twenty five years, then we'll all come back. <laughs> uh, okay, I actually won't because I can't say any more about Lion. I've already exhausted every thought that I've ever had about this fucking movie. Well, just um, <laughs> you're just the the sunny power of of this part of the Kid Manifesto. We'll cast your Dev Patel in 25 years to play you. Hey, as long as he's as attractive as Dev Patel, then I accept. Uh, this gives you, okay, so this gives you a very respectable 21 out of 30, um, which puts you amongst uh, equally important films, Batman Forever, uh, truly important film, Eyes Wide Shut, uh, what else? It puts you one behind Paddington, um, one behind The Beguiled, um, one behind The Others. This is this is not a bad ranking. What's the leader at the, uh, right now? Oh, let's see. And I might have to edit this out depending on if it's aired or not. Um, the highest is... Uh, okay, so the highest is to die for with 27. Okay, that's that makes sense. It's a near-perfect score. Uh, we'll see if anything has the capacity to to top that when I eventually end this and do some sort of retrospective. I think I think it sounds like Lion is is where it should be. If anything, maybe a little higher than it should be in the ranking. Yeah, I'm not here to comment on where I think it should be, but I think it's maybe a little inflated and that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, I do, I do have one last job for you before you go. If you, uh, if you're up for it, which is, um, as perhaps the closest thing I've had on here to a big little eyes expert as someone who's had to write about it. Um, you're going to be tasked with doing something very specific, which is explaining as much of the plot of big little eyes season one as you can. Um, but you'll only have a minute to do it. So, uh, whenever you feel ready, I'll put a minute on the clock and you can go ahead and go. Okay, deep breath. Uh, Channeling my inner 
plot summarizer. Okay, I think I'm ready. All right, go for it. So, in Big Little Lies, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, uh, play uh, close friends in um, an affluent uh, California town in Monterey uh, Bay. Um, They take a new transplant played by Shailene Woodley, who has a really checkered past under their wing, um, and get into uh, an ongoing feud with uh, another uh, parent from their children's school, uh, played by Laura Dern. Uh, Those four women and a fifth woman who is married to Reese Witherspoon's character's uh, ex, uh, join forces um, to take down uh, the Shailene Woodley's character's uh, rapist, who turns out to be Nicole Kidman's character's uh, husband, abusive husband, played by Alexander Skarsgård. That was right on the money. Were you also timing yourself? Because I was, as you could hear. Right no, I, no, I literally wasn't. <laughs> I just was trying to get through all the main characters. <laughs> that was good. I was worried you were going to um, lose yourself uh, thinking about the name of Monterey, but you not only rebounded from that, but you came in right at the buzzer. That's good. I, I, I'm happy with that summary. Um, hopefully no one who is listening to this hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> oh, I, at this point, at this point, that's not my problem. <laughs> I also, yeah, it's been a while. I might be having a stroke, but I, and I might've even said this before, but I don't think anyone has mentioned Robin Weiger in their summary. And I don't know what I'll do when someone does. I'll be so thrilled. It's hard because I really did want to sneak in some bits about the therapy sessions because I think they're the best part of the show. Um, they just make me miss also, In Treatment so much. Oh, I loved In Treatment. That's a great show. Um, yeah, I mean, I um, the other thing that I think I would like to mention if I had more than 60 seconds was that like really garbage interrogation uh, framing device. But it gives us Hong Chao. I just found that whole trope really tiresome. In fact, I found it so tiresome that it ended up being part of what I wrote about when I wrote about Big Little Lies. In any case, uh, I will put that 60-second summary up against anyone's, but whoever mentions Robin Weigert probably should win whatever prize you're giving out. I uh, Maybe I'll even take it out so that I can just keep it a mystery. Anyway, uh, before we go, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me uh, at pastemagazine.com uh, and uh, on Twitter at The Film Goer. Perfect. Um, you can find the podcast itself at The Kid Manifesto on Twitter. Uh, you can also search for it and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pocket Cast. Uh, and you should definitely do that. You should also probably write a review um because that's helpful uh we didn't talk about this but what should i play us out to should i just use the sia song at the end of the movie oh my god i didn't even think about that um is that too mournful (laughs) yeah it's a (laughs) it's a weird song uh although i guess there's not really there aren't many other lion related options um that I can think of off the top of my head. 
Eh, I'll probably just do that. It seems apt. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for having me on, Sam. This was really fun. Oh yeah, thank you for thank you for coming on and doing this. Um, I definitely needed a professional to <laughs> to get us through this, and uh, I'm glad you were available. Thank you. Yeah, it was a blast. I'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Bye.